When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Have you ever had to communicate the same thing to people multiple times? Like, why aren't they getting it? Well, thanks to yet another example of poor leadership from Captain Archer, we get to talk about how to effectively communicate and reinforce a message to your team. I'm also going to share the dangers of attaching your ego to just about anything work-related. I'm looking forward to this one. It's the first episode of the third season of Enterprise, The Zindi. We're in the middle of a council meeting. What looks like a bunch of new and diverse species. There's a reptile looking dude, maybe like an ape, humanoid, some underwater sea monsters, and a big old fly. They're worried that this earth ship they keep hearing about in the Delphic Expanse is coming for them. Oh, I think these might be Zindi, or at least at least the reptilian ones. If you remember in The Expanse, we saw the body of the Zindi that flew the weapon to Earth. The reptile-looking dude here looks really similar to that one. Whoa! And they changed up the theme music. No one's gonna bend or break me. I can reach. It's a lot more upbeat, going from the four feel to a two, basically a double-time backbeat feel that ensures me that this season will be fun, uplifting, and, you know, kind of poppy. Well, to back that up, Archer, Paul, and Reed are in a new command center that was built on Enterprise during the refit. They're heading to some mines to meet a worker who a freighter captain says is a Zindi. Reed, as the tactical officer, is advising caution as they approach the mines. Archer responds with an absolute master class on how to reinforce and support your team. Where are we, Malcolm? So, this room, what did it used to be? Starfleet went to a lot of trouble to turn it into our new command center. Why is that, Malcolm? Archer's frustrated. They've been in the Delphic Expanse for six weeks now, and this is the only lead they've uncovered so far. We meet some of the Makos. Military Assault Command. This is their first long-term underway and are just starting to acclimate. Major Hayes leads the team, and they seem to be a close, well-run team. 
Well, Dr. Flox is still learning what he can about the Zindi based on what they found on the body back on Earth. He visits with DePaul to talk about Tucker, the chief engineer. He's not coping well with the death of his sister in the Zindi attack, and he's not getting a lot of sleep. Sedatives and other more traditional treatments aren't working well. So he says to T'Pol, I believe the commander would be a fine candidate for Vulcan neuropressure. But she is not okay with this idea. The instruction of neuropressure is a very intimate act. But Phlox persists, and she ultimately agrees. Unfortunately, Tripp has said that he's not okay with this. So Phlox is trying to get her to help convince him. Some pretty sneaky stuff here by Dr. Phlox. Reed and Archer get to the mines. The atmosphere is toxic over long periods of time, so they're trying to be quick about it. The foreman of the mine, though, he's, he's a real opportunist. He's going to require a bunch of liquefied platinum before he makes the introduction. To prove he's serious, he gives them the tip of the Zindi's finger. Says it came off from an unfortunate accident. They return to Enterprise to confirm it's Zindi and to see if they can pull together the platinum. We get a few glimpses of Tucker's nightmares that have been waking him up. Sad. Not only does he have to watch his sister die, but he has to do it wearing some awkward, terrible, late 90s casual wear. Yikes. That really is a nightmare. Phlox examines the finger. Archer asks if it's Zindi, and Phlox says, Yes. And no. A lot of it lines up with the samples he's been studying, but but not not quite. The Zindi he's been studying was a reptilian. This guy has humanoid skin. Hmm. Maybe, maybe it is one of the dudes that we saw back in the council scene. Maybe they are the Zindi. Well, Archer and Trip go back to the mine. At this mine, they get trellium D to insulate starships. It's a very, very valuable material. Well, on the ship, they found the platinum, and the foreman sends him down to meet the Zindi worker. Yep, looks a lot like the humanoid we saw in the council scene. They try to get him to tell them where the Zindi homeworld is, but the barter system is alive and well here. If you want information, you're going to have to help me escape from this place. He wants them to bust him out. All the workers are people that have been captured and enslaved. He's got nothing to lose, so he's not budging till they agree to free him. But Trip escalates things quickly. I'm not sure why, but I'm just itching to get the hell out of you. Archer begs him off. They give up on the Zindi guy and head back to their shuttle pod. As they leave, Dude tells them they're doomed. Usually they have to go out and find ships to replenish their labor force. You flew right into their trap. Right on cue, the doors are locked and their communications are blocked. They're trapped in the mines. On Enterprise, the foreman communicates and tells them there's a delay because there's uh, some cargo ships on the way and they're deionizing the landing decks. So they're going to have to wait. And during that time, comms are going to be down. Reed, remember the guy that thought caution would be a really good thing here, but then Archer shut him down? Well, yeah. Well, Reed says, Something doesn't smell right. And he couldn't be more right. Zindi worker guy says he can lead them to the surface. They wade through raw sewage and then climb through inactive plasma ducts. That leads them to a big old tube that they get to climb up. Major Hayes and Reed are arguing about who should lead the rescue effort. Sir, you're out of order. Out of order. I show you out of order. Reed takes the conflict super personally. 
but they eventually compromise that six Makos will go, but Reed is going to lead the team. They head down, weapons hot, only half an hour till the cargo vessels arrive, and then Enterprise will be locked in a losing battle as well. On the climb up, the Zindi shares quite a bit. You see, there are five distinct species of Zindi, and they rarely get along or agree. He was about to share more, but the foreman is on to them, and they have to shift plans pretty quickly. We're going to have to pick up the pace, gentlemen. But they're not quick enough. They get caught by the foreman's men, but then the rescue teams arrive, and we're in a shootout. The Makos are rocking it. They're on target. They're resilient and relentless. Nice shot. They make pretty short work out of the miners, but as they're loading into the shuttle, Zindi guy takes a shot to the back. They load him up as they make their escape. They dock on Enterprise and warp away before the other ships can get to them. Phlox tries to treat Zindi guy, but... I'm terribly sorry, Captain, but there was nothing I could do. Before he died, though, he dictated the coordinates of the homeworld to Phlox. <laughs> and they're off! On the way, Phlox gives Trip a placebo sedative and sends him to see to Paul. She's wearing a silky nightie and offers to help him sleep. You're having trouble sleeping as well. She shares her struggles and asks him to help with her neuropressure therapy. She uses this as a way to get him to try it as well. It would be only fair for me to return the favor. She then explains that Vulcan neuropressure could help him and kind of pressures him into trying it out. It works and yeah, it works. The Enterprise arrives at the home world and... I'm not detecting any planets inhabited or otherwise. There's nothing there but a huge debris field. It was a planet. As if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. After all this, they have almost nothing more than they did at the beginning of the episode. They decide to head deeper into the expanse. The Zindi Council assumes that the Enterprise is a scout vessel, the vanguard of an invasion force. I am the vanguard of your destruction. But they can't agree on how to proceed. The Fly Dude says that they need to focus on finishing the weapon. And that's all that matters. So, basically nothing happened in this episode but we learned some things right there are five species of zindi they don't work well together and they think earth is coming to invade them we also get to see the makos in action but but other than that nothing really changed between minute zero and minute 44 in this one these were the early days of serialized tv and like babylon 5 looks like this story is going to take some time to set the table come to quartz glasses fun come right now don't walk run I have a question for you. What is one thing that separates truly great leaders from the rest? Like, what are they doing that you aren't? The answer? Effective leadership coaching. But here's the thing. It's really hard to find a coach that you will work well with, that you'll get along with, that will, that will understand your needs. And that's where the Starfleet Leadership Academy comes in. That's right. If you're a leader or even an aspiring leader that wants to develop and build your skills so you can benefit your teams and you want to do that in a fun and engaging way, reach out today. Visit starfleetleadership.academy contact to schedule a time with me, Jeff Aiken, and find out if coaching from me personally is right for you. That's starfleetleadership.academy contact. Thanks. Live. Lead and prosper. Parenting can be tough, but sharing stories 
even the tough ones, are how we come together and strengthen our village. Connect with your team through these stories. Welcome to Our Village Stories, parenting through passion and grit. To become a villager, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast. In the 30th episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, Discovery, Choose Your Pain, I talked about the incredible performance review that Saru set up for himself. Now, there's a tool that enables you to do the same thing for yourself and your teams. For your free copy of this tool, visit starfleetleadership.academy and join the mailing list. You'll not only get a free copy of this incredible tool, but you'll also hear about other cool things going on with the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Visit starfleetleadership.academy today and get your free copy. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. So, turns out I was wrong about the new theme music. If this episode is any indication, this series, this season, is going to be far from bright and cheerful. In fact, overall, this was one of the darker episodes of Star Trek up to this point. Like, think about it. They're scraping platinum off their equipment just to try to talk to someone that might maybe sort of could maybe possibly point them in the right direction. And after all that, including a big old firefight, all they find is Alderaan. Continue with the operation. You may fire when ready. What? The action plan from here? <laughs> Keep looking. So disappointing for the crew, and not a lot of forward progress for us as the viewers. But we got a solid taste of the tone of the season and the new players. I like how they introduced the Makos and the way they showed the Zindi Council. The episode opened with them, but we didn't really know who they were until the end. That was cool. That was really well done. But the story in this one, well, eh, right? Like, go work with a shady mine foreman to get info from one of the workers. I mean, rough stuff for sure, but but really this whole episode wasn't so different from the Voyager two-parter workforce, which actually aired just two years before this one did. One big difference between these two, though, is the Voyager crew, after they were abducted and had to get put to work, they did not have to wade through raw sewage. Like, in the raw sewage scenes here, they used colors and stuff to make it a little easier to watch, but ugh, when they're climbing up the big plasma conduit, sewage sewage is literally dripping off of them and, 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 ugh, and onto each other's heads and faces. Ooh, so gross. It's disgusting. I can't breathe. I want to talk about some of the guest stars they had in this episode. They were awesome. The foreman was played by Stephen McHattie. You might remember him as the psychiatrist, Dr. Reston, on Seinfeld. Could I offer you something to drink? Um, coffee, anything? Okay, uh, yeah, I'll have a... Do you have a, a decaf cappuccino? Or maybe, more likely, as Senator Vrenak from Deep Space Nine's masterpiece, In the Pale Moonlight. It's a fake. Richard Lineback played the Zindi minor guy, Kessick. He was incredible in the role. I mean, I totally believe that he would do anything to escape that hell. But you might remember Lineback as one of the addicts from the infamous TNG episode, Symbiosis. What I can't understand is why anyone would voluntarily become dependent on a chemical. And he was really super believable in that one, too. But can we talk about the T'Pol and Tucker stuff? First, like, I'm cool with the concept of Vulcan neuropressure. I mean... 
Today, here, we have acupuncture, cupping, dry needling, acupressure, all kinds of other medical practices that are, I don't know, kind of similar to this. I even like the way that Flock's kind of manipulated to Paul and Trip to make it happen, which, which I'll talk about more in the command code section. It reminded me of convincing someone to try acupuncture or something like that when, uh, when they don't think it's going to work. But, I mean... Do they have to sex it all up? Please, disrobe. They outright call themselves out on this. They say it's not sexual at all. So so why do we have to get a whole scene with DePaul taking her top off and then covering herself up? Like, I get it, right? They were trying to make this show more uh, appealing to a male demographic, but whew, this this was pretty ridiculous and did not age well at all. Like most serialized shows, it's hard to judge any one single episode on its own, especially one that is really meant to introduce us to the new rules in the, in the world. But as far as that goes, this one is, I don't know, is pretty good. I'm pretty sure I understand now just how high the stakes are for Enterprise, so hmm, mission accomplished. Command codes verified. Do you remember the 15th episode of this podcast? I do. <laughs> it's the one where we watched Enterprise Marauders. Dude, Captain Archer was awesome in that one. It was from early in the show's second season, and he was doing everything right. Well, that's not the Archer that we get in this one. But as he often does, his actions show us how not to do a thing. So I'm going to talk about how to be sure your team understands its role and the importance of its mission, even when you feel you shouldn't have to. But that's not all. I'm going to dive into the conflict between Malcolm Reed and Major Hayes and examine how damaging it can be when you assume the worst in others and attach your ego to outcomes. But before that, let's look at how Phlox, um, uh, persuaded? Yeah, yeah, we'll go with persuaded. Both DePaul and Trip Tucker to do the thing that would best help Trip and the ship as a whole. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Trip is in a bad way, and understandably so. I mean, his sister was killed in the Zindi attack, so he's having nightmares that keep him from sleeping. As you can probably relate, when you're not sleeping well, you're probably not performing well either, especially after a long time. And when your job is chief engineer of a top-of-the-line starship, if you're not performing well, 80-some-odd lives could end in a horrifying and fiery manner. Phlox, because he's a medical expert, on the doctor, and very good at what he does, knows what Trip needs to finally get some sleep. But he can't give this thing to him. To Paul is the only person on board that is qualified to help. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Tripp has said that he's not interested at all. So what do you do? Well, Phlox leaned on his relationships and his expertise to, well, let's just call it what it is, to manipulate the situation so Tripp could get what he needed. He was able to explain to T'Pol why, logically, it made sense for Tripp to receive Vulcan neuropressure and why she was the one who needed to administer it, but also why she needed to be the one to convince him to try it. And then he sets up the situation. Perhaps if I could get him to go to your quarters, you might be able to convince him of the lasting benefits of Vulcan neuropressure. He knows that in a medical setting, talking to a medical professional, 
Trip is just going to want the quick and easy fix. A sedative, something like that. But those haven't been effective, so Phlox has to shift his thinking, and he has to use another voice to do it. You've experienced this before, right? You've explained something to someone or come to an agreement or something like that, but they either don't do it or don't want to do it, or they don't understand what you explained. Then someone else comes along, says almost the exact same thing that you said, and it clicks for them, right? We've both had this happen before. And that's not because you messed up something or, or you failed. No, it's because the messenger, the messenger matters. Sometimes you can anticipate this. You know the person, you, you know what has to be communicated, and you can match the deliverer of the message to make it all jive. But sometimes it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why wouldn't you listen to your doctor when they're giving you medical advice? Oof, that one hits a little close to home, right? At least at the time of this recording. You get all your information from the CDC website, but you don't believe the CDC. But this guy, this guy is the expert. Phlox knows all the stuff. Why wouldn't you listen to him? Well, Phlox doesn't care that Trip won't listen. He just wants to help him be healthy. So he leans on a colleague to deliver the news. The important things for you to hear here are that he did not care if Trip heard him or not. He cared that Trip got the message, so he had someone else deliver it. No ego attached at all, just looking for the best result. And then it all fell into place. I gotta have something stronger to help me sleep tonight, Doc. Very well, come by at around uh, 2200 hours. I'll see what I can do. Trip knows the sedatives aren't enough, but he's willing to try something different as long as long as it's another sedative. Flock sees this as his opportunity. When Trip comes back, he gives him a placebo and then he asks, If uh, you wouldn't mind, Commander, I promised to Paul I'd take these bio scans to her quarters, but I still have quite a bit of work to do here. No problem, Doc. And this sets up the meeting with the Paul. When you have to do the right thing for someone, you use all the tools available to you. I really appreciated how open and willing Phlox was to just hand this off to T'Pol. Again, all he cared about was the best outcome for his patient. As a leader, this is the mindset you need when you're working with your team. It's not about your way. It's about the best outcome. And talking about letting ego get in the way, wow, Malcolm Reed is kind of out of control in this one. First, T'Pol just dumps an impossible mission in his lab. I want you to come up with a plan to recover the captain and Commander Tucker. Have it in place in one hour. And that's it. That's all that she tells him. Archer and Trip are trapped in the mines? Go save them. Two pieces of really important information here. First, in the last Enterprise episode, The Expanse, Archer requested and received a group of Makos, basically Marines, to handle the unpredictable combat situations they expect to encounter. Second, Reed's job on the Enterprise is armory officer or tactical officer. His job is to protect the ship. So what we're faced with is a potentially hostile extraction job on the planet's surface with the impending threat of enemy ships heading directly towards them. Reed argues with Major Hayes, the head of the Makos, about how to go about the mission. T'Pol steps in and Reed says, The Major here thinks my security team is far too valuable to bring down and put in the line of fire. He wants to take his men. It's a simple matter of priorities. But T'Pol agrees with Hayes. 
the Makos were literally brought on board for missions just like this. This is what they do. But Reed wouldn't look at it that way. No, he saw this as a personal attack. Hayes tried to soften the blow by saying Reed and his team were necessary to protect the Enterprise if the enemy ships showed up, which, which is true. But the real, the simple, honest truth is that his team, the Makos, are better qualified for this job. That had nothing to do with who knows Enterprise inside and out. It had to do with who the Major thinks is more capable of carrying out this rescue. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, it should always be about who can do a better job or who stands to develop the most or whatever the goal or the mission is. In this case, it's high stakes stuff with the captain and engineer's lives on the line. Yeah, you send the best people for the job. Reed comes at this assuming the worst. He thinks Hayes is making a power play and trying to make him and his team look less important and less capable than the Makos. But that's ridiculous. And even he sees how wrong he is. Near the end of the episode, he's talking to Trip. Nothing you guys couldn't have done just as well. I'm not so sure about that. It's just a little blip, but he sees that the Makos are competent and were the right choice for this mission. Now let's imagine what this would have looked like if Reed assumed positive intent instead. He would have broken down the mission to Hayes, who would have said that his team was specially trained for this kind of operation. Reed would have been excited that there were people on board that could help save Archer and Trip, and then the discussion would have shifted to how they could best coordinate between the ground and the ship. So simple and no hurt feelings. Reed could have even asked to join them or send some of his team along to see them in action and learn from them. They get the right outcome. They learn along the way and develop a relationship based on professional respect. And it all starts with how Reed chose to show up in that conversation. He chose to come from a scarcity mindset, to be threatened by Major Hayes and the Makos. What, you think you're better than me? What, you think you're better than me? You think you're better than me? All this does is breed distrust and unhealthy competition. Like, <laughs> part of me, part of me wishes that something would have gone wrong with the mission because he insisted on leading the team. Like, I don't know, just a quick 45 second back and forth where he and a Mako argue over something. He flexes his authority and the Mako gets shot. Something like that. Nothing fatal, but just enough something to show that he was out of his depth on this one. Still, even without that, he saw him in action. You got to see how good they really were. What are you doing or what is your team doing where you're coming from a scarcity mindset and assuming the worst? What's an activity? What's a task or a project where you could flip that and try to assume positive intent? When you assume positive intent, a lot of things happen. First, you expect good things to happen. You're able to start from a place of trust. It also gives you language that can transform potential conflicts. If someone comes at you with something that feels like an attack or like they're avoiding accountability without the assumption of positive intent, you might respond like Reed did, not to the core message, but to the perceived threat or the lack of performance. Dude, what are you saying? Of course I did this thing. <laughs> what did you do? But when assuming positive intent, you can reframe the situation. If I assume you have positive intent here, then I hear you saying this thing about the thing we're working on. Do you see what I mean? Reed, who assumed the worst, argued about who should go on the mission. 
Just like this example, where assuming the worst focuses on the conflict or the perceived problem. Assuming positive intent puts the focus on the task at hand. For Reed, it would have focused both him and Hayes on the rescue operation itself. One episode and two examples where setting your ego aside can have benefits for the entire team. Hmm, maybe there's something to this. Phlox was able to connect to Paul and Trip and set Trip on a journey to better sleep, and Reed could have better executed a mission and built a relationship with Major Hayes had he, like Phlox, not cared about who did the thing, but instead set his ego aside and just focused on the best way to do the thing. And yes, this is an episode of Enterprise, so we are bombarded with examples of not the best way to do things. And yes, I am looking right at you, Captain Archer. In the beginning of the episode, there's a scene that I think was meant to show us the new command center on the ship, but also to show how desperate they are when it comes to finding any info at all. Archer and Reed are talking about the mine they're approaching and how to go about it. Malcolm wants to be cautious. They don't have a lot of info, and what they do have is questionable at best. Archer doesn't even miss a beat in his response. Where are we, Malcolm? Sir? This room, what did it used to be? A storage base, a conduit housings, I believe. But it got retrofitted. So right off the bat, he's being demeaning and patronizing. Starfleet went to a lot of trouble to turn it into our new command center. Why is that, Malcolm? Because of our mission, sir. Like... Who wants to be talked to like this, ever? Oh, and it goes on. What data have we gathered? What pieces of the puzzle have we started to put together? Not a single one. This is always a good indicator that you've crossed into jerk territory. Jerk alert! When you're asking questions that you answer in rapid succession like this, yeah, time to pump the brakes. Oh, and the garbage icing on this sewage cake. Understood. As he walks through the door, not even giving Reed a chance to answer. Look, I want to be clear here. You should never, never speak to another person like this, ever. Like, there are even parenting experts out there that would tell you to not even talk to your kids like this. It's demeaning, it's patronizing, it's disrespectful. This is the personification of top-down authoritative leadership. And yes, I used air quotes when I said leadership. But here's the thing. We've all been where Archer is. They've been here in the Delphic Expanse for six weeks, hunting down the harbinger of humanity. Ooh, that sounds kind of cool. I like that. Harbinger of humanity. But, okay. The stakes are literally the planet Earth and all humans. I have got to believe that the last month and a half has been full of Archer reminding everyone of these stakes constantly. But here's Malcolm saying they should move slow and steady. Archer's thinking, what do I have to do to get through to this guy? I've been here before. You've been here before. We've been talking about this sale for weeks, right? And now you're asking about the deal registration? The only thing out of my mouth for the last three years has been inclusive and welcoming culture. And you're asking about providing an accommodation? I mean, to us. To the deliverer of the messages. This is so crystal clear. So why are we here now? Well, some of the problem is mechanical. Like 
Maybe you've been too high level in your messaging. Culture-based messages are often too uh, too ethereal, right, to wrap your mind around operationally. If I say something like, I want every person that works here to feel like they're wanted and they belong. Well, that sure sounds nice, right? But if I'm the direct supervisor on the floor, on the line, what does that mean? What does that look like? So what I, as the leader, may perceive as the person not getting the message could very easily be me not actually delivering the message or delivering the message as specifically as I need to. A lot of it is often that the messaging is just words. Like, you're saying all the right things, but there, there aren't any changes in responsibilities or operations. On the enterprise, for example, if Archer is talking Zindi this and Zindi that all the time, but for Reed and everyone else, their day-to-day is the same, well, the message is just words. I worked for a large organization that had an awesome culture initiative. It focused on all the right things, right? Prioritizing self-care, acknowledging that we as people had real and tangible value. Really awesome and cool stuff like that. They put together a great logo and even had some engaging PowerPoint decks to talk about the culture. They even went so far as assigning people to travel across the organization and personally train people on, on what it looked like. But that's it. Nothing else changed. Managers weren't held accountable to promoting the culture. There were no structures to give people the time to exercise that self-care or the other things the culture talked about. HR straight up blocked personnel initiatives that promoted the culture. I knew that this beautifully crafted and communicated dream, because that's all it was, was a dream, but I knew it was a flop when I wrote a rule in my email to put any emails about the culture into a separate folder. It was all talk, no action. So for you, the first things you need to do are shore up these pieces. Be specific in your messaging. Paint the picture of what things will look like when the task is done, or the project is complete, or the mission is accomplished, or the culture is part of your day-to-day. What will it physically look like? I've talked on this podcast a couple of times about what I consider to be the biggest measure of success when it comes to people. It's not metrics or KPIs or something that fits on a spreadsheet or a slide deck. No, it's physically observing the impact. Walking into a workspace or joining an online meeting and observing and experiencing things. You want an inclusive workplace? Don't just measure your diversity metrics. Observe how people interact. Want to increase sales? Don't just look at forecasts and trend reports. Listen to the words your AEs are using when they talk about customers and potential sales. So specific, observable, and actionable messaging. And then be sure there are tangible, operational impacts, possibly changes, due to your messaging. When people are doing what they have been hearing about, then it all sets in. But even with that, You'll have your situations like Reed has here where he's just not getting it. Everything Archer did here was wrong. And if you disagree with me on that, honestly, like if you think he was on point here, please, I am begging you, help me understand why. Hit me on Twitter at SFLA Podcast. Help me understand why Archer was correct to treat Reed the way that he did. Now, what should have happened here was this I think we should be cautious. Malcolm, listen, can we talk for a second here? What have I been talking about for the last six weeks? 
that all humanity is at stake here. That's right. Can you help me to understand how being cautious is going to help us save Earth? Pull them aside, have a conversation, ask questions, and wait for answers. I mean, as the episode shows us, some precautionary measures could have been a good thing. This would have given Malcolm a chance to show why his suggestion actually aligned with what Archer had been saying, while it also will reinforce what Archer's been saying. It reminds me, this reminds me of a situation I had with a manager once. They were struggling with a member of their team and their workload. I talk a lot in meetings about capacity, how to handle workload. In fact, I have a pretty simple guiding philosophy. We can all do exactly what we can do. Sometimes we can do maybe a little more, and sometimes we're going to do a little less. So when the workload is more than our capacity, it's not up to us to break our backs to bridge that gap. No, it's up to us to show the gap so it can be solved. So in this case, the manager was talking to me about the struggle and was looking for help in supporting their team member. After hearing what they had to say, I asked, hmm, it's interesting. What, uh, what do you think I'm going to say here? And they nailed it. They knew exactly what I was going to say, but they needed some validation on that before moving forward. And that is totally cool. Totally fine. So be specific in your messaging, make it as real and as hands-on as possible for people. And always, always take the time to reinforce the messaging when it appears that people are deviating from it. I'm excited to share some more reviews that have come through. Bill Trek on Apple Podcasts left a five-star review and says, As a Trekkie, I love the episode recaps and insights. As a manager, I love the leadership tips and ideas Jeff explores. Add the extra benefits of humor and personal stories makes this podcast a must-listen. Thanks, Bill Trek. <laughs> Vinny Potestivo also left a five-star review and says, it's wondrous, with treasures to satiate desires, both subtle and gross, but it's not for the timid. Thanks, Vinny. And Q. <laughs> I can't wait to read your review on here as well. Just go to Apple Podcasts, click Write a Review, and submit. To be sure I see it, though, take a screenshot and send it to me. You can tag me on Twitter at SFLA Podcast and most other social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T as in Trellium D A K I N. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. The 20th episode of the sixth season of Voyager, Good Shepherd. I don't remember a whole lot about this one, but if I do remember it correctly, Janeway takes some crew under her wing to help mentor and develop them. This sounds like an episode custom built for the Starfleet Leadership Academy. So until then, ex astra scientia. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. 
Electricast. Electricast.